0: The first reading is uh, a psalm, Psalm 96, and if you want to follow that, that's on page nine of your zines. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among all the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord, and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families and nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering, and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. His word is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And the second reading on page 10 is the one Paul referred to earlier, right at the very end of Matthew. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said,
1: Well, I say uh, I'm, a, I'm a talker, but actually, uh, I must admit, I don't always find it easy. And sometimes it goes completely pear-shaped. Um, even though I'm meant to be a professional at all this, um, I really do feel sometimes the pressure to just shut up. Uh, there was a time I was uh, with another minister friend down at a cafe at Balmoral Beach and I was talking to him pretty openly about what we were doing to reach out to the people of the area and I noticed this woman sitting just a couple of tables away and she was looking at us intently. I assumed that she was a Christian, interested in what we were talking about, so I just blabbed on and then I noticed out of the corner of my eye, corner of my eye she got up and she paid her bill and she walked over to my table and in front of this packed cafe at the top of her lungs, she said, you want to convert the world, do you? How dare you? This was the point I realized she probably wasn't a Christian after all, and she stormed off. And it was one of those times where you think of the perfect comeback about three hours later. At the time, I was completely dumbfounded. The, The cafe, all eyes on me, the wicked, proselytizing, fundamentalist converter. And my friend and I just really didn't know what to say. For a moment, I doubted the beauty and logic of the thing I do full time. My, my whole life is about trying to work out how to communicate the Christian faith to people who don't believe. And just in that moment, I just thought maybe, maybe that is the stuff of the fundamentalistic, proselytizing, horrible version of Christianity. And so, (laughs) I share that with you just to say, uh, hey, you know, if you're a Christian and you're sort of, you're living in the world, you you know, you will have had experiences like that. Maybe not as dramatic, but maybe. Maybe. It's hard. And so, what I want to do in our uh, time this evening is think about Why we would bother? What's the rationale? When the rhetoric of our world is sometimes so strong, religion is private, keep it to yourself. All religions are equally true, so shut up. All religions are equally false, so shut up. All religions poison everything. Why? Why would we just break that mold? that is expected of us, and promote Christ. Now, there are all sorts of perfectly sensible reasons that might be offered. You could say, well, because the Bible commands us to. Okay. You could say, Jesus means so much to me and I want to share Him. Sure. You could say, we worry about our our neighbors and our friends who might fall under the judgment of God, And, and I can see there's logic there. But I want to suggest tonight that there is in Scripture, Old and New Testament, a more basic rationale for promoting Christ in the world, and therefore a basic source of Christian confidence in this world. And I want to show it to you from the Old and the New Testament, and our passages uh, are right there before, before us, starting with Psalm 96. Obviously, it's a plea to God's people to pipe up Verse 1 is pretty clear, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, praise His name, proclaim His salvation day after day. Now, there's nothing strange there on first look. Of course, many psalms say that God's people are to praise Him, sing to Him, etc., but actually, verse 2 is a little bit odd. The words proclaim salvation day after day. The word proclaim here, just for the nerds in the audience, is the Hebrew term "basar," from which we get the term evangelism. It is the Hebrew term for sharing good news. and You get it uh, in lots of places, particularly in Isaiah, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. It's just the term "basar," from which we get preaching the gospel and all those other words. So uh, this simple praise has an evangelistic dimension, which is heightened in verse 3, actually. Declare His glory, look at the audience, among the nations, His marvellous deeds among all peoples. Now, that's interesting, because that's not Israel. That's not the congregation in Jerusalem in the temple. That's everyone else. So, uh, this psalm is saying that somehow God's people are to proclaim His salvation within earshot of those who don't yet believe, the nations. You might think, how on earth could they have done that when there was no broadcasting technology, no PA to set up outside the Jerusalem temple? I think part of the answer must be that Jerusalem was an international city in the ancient world. I mean, it was the land bridge from Africa to Europe, from Europe to Africa. All trade went up and down that little strip of land we now call the State of Israel. And Jerusalem, therefore, had tons of pagan neighbors going up and down, up and down, up and down. And so it's in that context, I think, we to understand Israel's own opportunity to proclaim God's glory among the nations. And verse 7 confirms that this praise was meant to function as some kind of evangelism because, look at verse 7, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are addressed directly. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. That's non-Israel, that's the pagans of the world. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do His name, bring an offering and come into His courts. That's amazing. This is an Old Testament psalm asking non-Israelites, pagans, to come into the temple courts and join in the worship of God. Now, there are so many things we could explore in this psalm, but I just want to explore the one thing... I mentioned at the outset. Why? What is the reason given by the psalm for this universal proclamation of God's glory? What's the source of confidence? The answer is there in the stanza I skipped over, verses 4 to 6. See, verses 4 to 6 follow the call to declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among all peoples. And it begins with the Hebrew term ki, which means for or because. Okay? Why do we proclaim His glory among the nations? Because. For, here it is, great is the Lord, and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. That word, Elim, means nothingness. All the gods of the nations are Elilim, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Uh, I just submit to you that the psalm gives just one reason for this universal proclamation of God's glory God's sheer, unique greatness as the one Lord over all nations. That's the reason. And I'm not saying that there aren't other reasons. Um, I'm open to the argument that a major motivation is the judgment of God. We love our friends and neighbors. We don't want them to fall under the judgment of God, so we lovingly share Christ with them. I get that. And in a sense, the second half of the psalm is about judgment, isn't it? Certainly, the word judgment appears loads of times. Have a look at verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns, the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved, He will judge the peoples with equity. And then down to verse 13, it's repeated. Let all creation rejoice because the Lord comes, He comes to judge the earth, He will judge the world in righteousness and the people's in faithfulness. Um, we, we live in a context where people cringe at the thought of judgment. As soon as I said the word judgment, I'm sure some of you went… Because, partly because um, of preachers like me, right, who have thumped the pulpit, declared judgment with a smile on the face, and, and, and it, it puts people completely off. I get that. It's also because people don't like the idea of judgment, as in They just don't want to be judged, okay? And who wants to be judged? Right? Even if it were logically valid that God judges you, we don't want it, and so we avoid it. But but the thing I just want us to to notice about judgment in this psalm, it's quite unlike how we normally think of it. It's good news. See all this stuff about God's coming to judge, hurrah! You think, what? Were they perverse in wanting people to smash, wanting God to smash the, the the foreigners? No. The whole point of this section of the psalm is to say it's good news that God is coming to bring justice. This is not theological scare tactic, become more religious or you're going to get judged. In this psalm, judgment is God's promise to wounded humanity that He hears their cry for justice and He will come and bring equity and justice. And Jesus said the same thing. That's what He meant by the kingdom of God kingdom of God will come and make all things well. But that's a bit of a sidetrack, because I want you to notice, fundamentally, that even then, judgment isn't the reason for proclaiming the Lord's glory. It's not given as the reason, is it? It's the content, say among the nations, it's part of the content, but it is not given as the reason. This psalm gives one reason only For this universal proclamation of God's glory. And it's back there in verse 4, as I said, because great is the Lord and most worthy of praise, he is to be feared above all gods. The existence of just one Lord makes our mission to everyone logical, beautiful. And it's the same in the New Testament. Our New Testament passage, Matthew 28, is called the Great Commission. They call it the Great Commission because it's, you know, great and Jesus commissions them, right? So, uh, it's like the most famous mission passage in the New Testament. But again, as I reread it, ask yourself the question, what is the one reason Jesus gives for going into all the world and making disciples of all nations? He just gives one reason. It says, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Look at that logic. The single reason Jesus gives for going, making disciples, teaching all the nations, is that He has all authority in heaven and on earth. I'm not making that up, right? That's, that's what the text says. The, there, the therefore is there for that reason, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. That's the reason by the way, this is one of those moments where Jesus, meek and mild, the lovely Galilean teacher who said beautiful things, suddenly becomes the confronting Jesus who said crazy things, right? I mean, this is one of those moments where people who go, I love Jesus' teaching, love your neighbour, do good to others, like, I love that. We suddenly realise, the one who said that also said this. You, You can't separate them. The the evidence that Jesus said stuff like this is just as good as the evidence that He said, be nice to each other. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him, which leaves no other authority, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, the point is, The logic of the Great Commission is the same logic of Psalm 96, it's exactly the same. Why reach out to the world? Because of His sheer greatness, His unique authority. He is the one Lord of heaven and earth. That's the rationale. Now, I'm well aware that this cuts across what has become a modern secular gospel. Modern secular gospel is, everyone's allowed their own truth. What's true for you doesn't have to be true for me, yeah? What's true for me doesn't have to be true for you. We've all got our own truth. And we tend to say this like we invented it. You know, like over a glass of Chardonnay in 1995, the first person said that's true for you, but not true for me. But actually, it's as old as the 5th century B.C. The first uh, philosophical relativist is a man called Protagoras, an ancient Greek philosopher. You may have never heard of him, he was a big deal in the 5th century B.C. He was a famed rhetorician, And they used to say of him that he could make the weakest argument sound the strongest. That's how good his rhetoric was. But he famously said, man is the measure of all things. Of the things that are, that they are. Of the things that are not, that they are not. Things are for every man as they seem to him to be. That's his famous quote. He was a full-on relativist, things are just true for you and people were really enamoured with Protagoras for about 80 years until Plato came along and Plato said, not so much. Plato wrote a book, a full-on demolition of Protagoras's relativism. I won't bore you with the details but Plato basically said, uh-huh, so Protagoras says all things are relative to just the person's perspective. And Plato asked, does that include Protagoras' perspective? Does Protagoras think it's true that all things are relative to one's perspective? Or is it just another relative perspective? Because if it's just another relative perspective, it's just an opinion. But if Protagoras thinks he stumbled across a truth, he proves that his truth is false because one thing would be true, yeah, and people, you know, they listen to Plato and went, yeah, 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 because he basically showed that relativism refutes itself. As soon as you affirm it to be true, you prove that it isn't. There is just no escaping the fact that every time we make some claim about what is true, we are, by definition, saying that contrary things are false and everyone's in the same basket and we just got to get used to it instead of coming up with this, oh, that's true for you, not true for me, nonsense. As soon as you affirm something is true, by definition, you are saying that contrary things are false. Everyone's doing it. The atheist is doing it by saying everyone's, all the religious people are wrong and they're right, okay? The religious person is doing it by saying, you know, Christianity's true and other things aren't true. The pluralist, who says, no religion is more true than another, is doing exactly the same thing because it's denying what every other religion says about itself. Everyone is stuck with this. And and to sort of wind it back to where we probably should be, if it is in any sense true that there's one God in what possible sense can it be equally true that there isn't? If it's true that Jesus died on a cross and rose again, in what possible sense can it be true that He didn't? And so, the logic of mission is impeccable. There is one Lord. And if you believe that, if you believe the Lord made the heavens, it makes perfect sense and becomes beautiful to declare His glory among the nations. If it is true, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, if you believe that, it is the most logical thing in the world to want to make disciples of all nations and pass on His teaching. So, why do we try and promote Christ to the atheist neighbour with the fancy car and the attitude to go with it? Why? Why? Why are we trying to reach the retiree with a giant nest egg? Why are we trying to reach the first-class honours student with the wardrobe to match? Why? Because they all belong to one Lord. They all breathe because of the gift of one Lord. Our mission is first and foremost a reality mission long before it's about meeting human need. Because there are some people who don't feel any need of God. You know, I used to say, um, you know, deep down there's no happy pagans in the world, right? Deep down, you know, everyone has a hole in their heart that only Jesus can fill. I used to say that. But the thing is, I grew up in Mossman and then moved all the way to Roseville and I've just met too many happy pagans, and, and too many conversations where I've gone, no, but really, really, you know, you, you've got something missing. And they go, nah, nah, pretty good. Good family, yeah, it's great. I live at Balmoral Beach, job's pretty good. Nah, no, I'm, I'm good, thanks. No, no, but he, no, 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 pretty good, thanks. There are happy pagans. But here's the thing, there's no such thing as a happy pagan who doesn't still belong to the one Lord, whose every breath is not a gift from the one Lord who owns heaven and earth. Our mission is a reality mission, just as much as it's a rescue mission. There are all sorts of reasons for Christians to be shy about the faith. I get that. Some of us are worried about the intellectual basis of the faith, you know, like, you've got intellectual questions you can't answer, you haven't heard them answered in a sermon, so you just keep quiet, lest someone ask you the tricky question. Um, some people just don't like to be labelled, you know? You don't want to be labelled, like, evangelical or something like that. Others are just shy, you know? We've all got different personalities, and some of us can hardly tell a joke to our friends, let alone, you know, Jesus died on a cross and rose again for your sins, right? I mean... I get it. We're all wired differently. We all have different situations. But here's the thing I want to say. The antidote to Christian shyness is a fresh vision of the Lord's majesty. And I, and I don't mean that that will suddenly turn you into an evangelist because, as I've said, I don't think the Bible teaches that about us. I do think, though, a fresh vision of Christ's majesty will make you the best version of yourself. Because in every room you find yourself in, you you can remind yourself who owns the room. Jesus owns the room. I don't just mean this room. This looks like a a room Jesus would own, right? (laughs) But, I mean, He owns every room, wherever you find yourself in. In a philosophy uh, lecture room this week, maybe. The professor doesn't own the room, Jesus does. And so you don't have to be scared of the lecturer when Jesus owns the room. The talk show hosts on our radio don't own the room, they just sound like they think they do. You're at work and you're in the staff room and the conversation turns around to Christianity and you think, oh no, there's that loudmouth atheist and I, I, I'll just, I just don't want to say anything. You've got to remind yourself Jesus owns that room as well. And you take a deep breath, you remind yourself who is the real Lord here and you just let that bubble out of your lips. I don't mean we're to be a jerk about it, because I'm not saying you own the room, (laughs) but Jesus does. And I think that can give us a delightful confidence and a gentleness, actually, because the weird thing is, the more confident you are that Jesus owns the room, the less you feel it really depends on you. And so you can just sort of open your mouth and see what comes out and leave it in God's hand. Some of you may have seen the um, Sydney Morning Herald article a few years ago now, um, just before Sir Edmund Hillary died. You know, Sir Edmund Hillary, who, with Tenzin Norgay, his um, Sherpa guide, conquered Everest for the first time in 1953. He was huge, became a sir, you know, doors were opened for him, he became wealthy. And according to this uh, article, he really gave back to the people of Nepal. He set up charities there, hospitals, schools, orphanages and so on. And on one of these charity trips, quite late in life, he was at a base camp and these tourist climbers were uh, just walking by and noticed Sir Edmund Hillary. And in the climbing community, he is legend. So they all gathered around him and said, can we have a photo? So he said, sure, of course. He's apparently just a pure gentleman. They gave him an ice pick axe thing, right, so he'd look the part, right, and he was very happy just to go along with that. Another tourist climber was walking past, didn't recognise Sir Edmund Hillary, and said, um, excuse me, that's not how you hold an ice pick. <laughs> and to everyone's stunned amazement, this bloke just walked up to Sir Edmund Hillary and adjusted it, to, you know, to however you meant to hold the thing, and Hillary just thanked the man very much and went on with the photo. I want to imagine you were there that day, I don't think you could have resisted piping up to that guy, do you know who this is? Some of us would have gone, you idiot, do you know who this is? And others would have just quietly gone along and said, I don't mean to be rude, but do you know who this is? And someone obviously passed it on to the Sydney Morning Herald, so the story got out somehow. I'm sure you can see where I'm going. I mean, the thing is, this guy was in the presence of pure greatness and he had no idea. And his sheer greatness is just crying out to be known. Friends, our our work colleagues, our neighbors, our loved ones live and breathe in the presence of sheer greatness, the Lord of heaven and earth. And often they don't know it. And so we, the people of the Lord, who have glimpsed His majesty, in whatever way we can, given our circumstances and personality and opportunities, in whatever way we can, we declare His glory among the nations, His marvellous deeds among all peoples, for great is the Lord. And most worthy of praise. So, Lord, will you please, by your Spirit and through your word, grant us all confidence in your glory, your majesty give us a fresh vision that we might be the best version of ourselves in public for you. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.